0: Namaste, everyone. Om Maginat Miranda Sia Ginnad Janasa Lakaya Chakshuru Militan Yena Sri Namah Krishna Chaitan Prabhu Nitya Sri Adwaitang Adar. Srivasadi Gorbakta Vinda, A e Krishna Kauruna Sindhu, Dinabandu Jagatvate, Gopisha Gopika Kanta, Radha Kanta Namosate, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Hari Bong Pardon? Have we turned off the heat? It is off. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, up to you guys. It's not me how I feel. I'm always worried about how everybody else is doing. In all of the yoga systems there is this fundamental truth that is presented. One is this, and we're talking about at the base level, that you are an eternal spiritual being that the body is not who you are, and the labels that are attached to the body and to the mind are not who you are. It is it is a formula for unhappiness to identify the body as the self. I am a man, I am a woman, I am tall, I am short, I am young, I am old. You can recognize these characteristics of being the body, but once you start identifying with those characteristics, you are opening your life up to great unhappiness. And even if you try artificially to fix the environment and get everybody to speak in a certain way or observe certain protocols or whatever. All you're doing is delaying the inevitable unhappiness that one experiences at the moment of death. And as one approaches it, it was like, what the hell was that all about? What was that for? And I just live in this dream world trying to dredge up memories of past experiences and past happiness. The characteristic of material happiness is that it is temporary and it cannot fulfill you. You get a bit of a rush and then I think, oh, I need to do that again. But when I keep doing it, it's sort of like, you know, the flavor goes down. You know, I sometimes use the example. You ask somebody, what's what's your favorite food? And just let's say someone says ice cream or pizza. Okay, let's lock somebody in a room for two weeks, and the only thing that you are going to eat is your favorite food. Three times a day, you'll get plenty of it, as much as you want, but that's the only thing you're gonna eat. It only takes maybe three days or four days for you to just be so over it. You never want to see it again. You can find the most beautiful music, and I'm not talking about spiritual sound, but music. There's this song, oh, when I hear it, it just like, oh, I just feel so, you know. Okay, let's duct taped someone to a chair and put a headphones on. And that's all you're going to hear 24 hours a day for the next week. And within about four hours into it, you'd never want to hear that sound again. The question then should come to us. So where is the good feeling coming from? Because, you know, if I have one dollar and somebody gives me another dollar, now I got two. And if somebody gives me $10, now I got 12. The more I add to it, the bigger it gets. If my happiness can be found in these experiences, then the more I do them, the happier I should be. Is that a stunning revelation or not? I mean, think about it. And, and we know the opposite is true. This is an example of how deluded we are in the material condition, where we have assumed you know, that all we need to do is continuously stimulate the senses and the mind with different experiences. Somebody comes up with the cute idea Variety is the spice of life, which has a little truth to it. But all you're doing is putting off the inevitability. What happens when you run out of the variety? How many times can you cycle through the same stuff before it starts getting old? And then what it does, it has this effect on you, that then you think, okay, now I got to turn up the volume. I need a little bit of a lemon twist in this one, you know. I've now I've got to start adding, you know, a shot of Tabasco with it or something. I've got to spice it up, and and we end up in this downward spiral where things become increasingly, and I'll use a term that might spaz people out, increasingly depraved, because it never goes to a good place. They have, you know, this revelation in the Bhagavad Gita, and when they are talking about different experiences of so-called happiness, and they categorize it into three, Categories, And we're talking not about spiritual experience, but material happiness. There is happiness that's considered in the mode of darkness. And examples of this are all varieties of intoxication that immediately may seem like, <laughs> but you keep hammering it, and where do you end up? You're an alcoholic or you're drug addicted. Your life is spiraling out of control. Next minute, everything's gone into collapse and people are living on the street. People are prostituting themselves. People are doing all kinds of stuff just for the the next hit. And so the so-called happiness that one derives from this experience leads to a very dark, place it completely covers any awareness of the soul of my spiritual being and enslaves us to the demands of the senses and the mind it's considered this is delusion from beginning to end the most common form of of you know material experiences categorizes happiness in the mode of passion. It is always derived from the contact of your senses, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching your senses with the sense objects. And in the beginning it is like nectar, but later becomes like poison. You know, anybody being on that path? You know, it's kind of like a lot of people that get married are on that path. (laughs) That which in the beginning seemed like nectar, then later it became like poison, just so out of it and people just fighting with each other and violence and abuse and you know, and it goes both ways, it's not just one way. So these are kind of little bit graphic examples, but what it's pointing to and what's later people are informed, it is so important for you to be in control of your mind and not for your mind to be in control of you. This is a stunning idea. This is just like, wow, this is far out. In the Bhagavad Gita, it states that the mind can be one's greatest friend or one's greatest enemy. Your own mind can be a greater enemy than anyone or anything else. All you have to do is talk to somebody or if you yourself have experienced the depths of depression and attempts at suicide or self-harm. This is a clear manifestation of how your mind can become your worst enemy. So For the mind to become the greatest friend, it means the mind must be bridled. This word bridle, it's like when, you know, the face harness harness that you put on a horse and there's a bit in the mouth and it's used for controlling the horse, go, stop, left, right, you know, fast, slow. It's all done through the bridle. And when the mind is uncontrolled or unbridled, Your life is going to be unhappy. Doesn't matter if you're on a high right now. The more you feed the mind, the more you guarantee that you're going to end up in a bad place. So, in you know, uh, I've done quite a lot because I I do work in the prisons and stuff. We we teach meditation and mindfulness. And, you know, to people that have done amazingly horrific things. And it's really far out when people can step back, when they learn to look at what was the pathway that led me there? What were my choices? You know, learning to be the one in the driver's seat, it is your business to determine what you are going to be thinking about, what kind of decisions you are going to make in life. Your decisions and your actions all have consequences that you cannot avoid, and therefore learning to make really good choices produces brilliant outcomes in your life. And mindfulness is really learning how to step back from an overactive mind. When you are in a heightened state of emotions, good or bad, I advise people, don't say anything. (laughs) You know, this is where so much harm is caused, in a heightened state of emotions, good or bad. You know, people declare undying love and when they're on a high and then that turns into a crap sandwich, you know, because they didn't look at things very objectively. They were just on this emotional high or you are overwhelmed by fear or anger or envy and then you're blasting somebody online or to their face, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, you've lost the plot, kid. You're you're not going to come out of this unscarred. You are going to be scarred. You are going to be injured. You are going to be damaged in a heightened state of emotions. Don't speak. Don't make a decision. And don't choose a course of action. Don't act. Step away and calm down. Do what you need to do. Do some chanting or some meditation, some breathing. Get away, get back from things. Say you need a timeout. I'll I'll address this when I'm in a calmer state where I can actually respond carefully and thoughtfully to you. I can address concerns. Calm down. And then from a calm state, consider what is in my long-term best interests and what is in this person's best interests. My mind will be telling me, no, your interest is to do this. You need to do this. You, you, you need. <laughs> and it may not be. You've got to think about the consequence of the choices you're going to make. Where's it really going to go? Am I prepared for the changes that will happen along this journey? Am I mature enough that I'm, I'm agreeing that I can accept the consequences, that I can deal with it, and we can manage this journey towards a better outcome. This This is really foundational to yoga and yoga practice. You know, all this crap that's taught about, you know, becoming more into myself, and it's not even you, it's the body and the mind. You know, and into the world and enjoying the world. You know, no, (laughs) the world is not spiritual. (laughs) It doesn't produce good outcomes. You may be flashes of, wow, that's nice. The nice things actually are a little, you're getting a little glimpse of the spiritual dimension. You know, the quest for beauty and for peacefulness and happiness. These are actually spiritual needs. But when I try to fulfill them within this world, I can get little glimpses of things that sort of, you know, connect with that. But long term, it can't. Long term, it can't. And so the control of the mind was considered the Highest priority in almost all yoga systems. The Ashtanga yoga system is the closest, even as it's known today, is the closest thing to actually, you know, authentic yoga processes. These eight limbs, as- Ashta is eight. Anga, Anga means limb the eight limbs of yoga. Yama and Niyama. These meant the things that I need to adopt in my life, the do's and the don'ts, that I need to adopt to, make, to give me the best possible chance of calming down, becoming centered, and taking control of my mind and directing my life so that there will be wonderful outcomes. Then there was asana. Asana in many of the yoga systems were only a few. There was only a handful, sometimes four, sometimes five, sometimes eight that were practiced. And they were done as a solitary practice in order to build the, the physical health of the body, so that the body could sit. Asana actually means to sit, and it implies sitting in comfort, to be able to comfortably sit for extended periods to engage in the other processes. And then the other processes were pratyahara. Pratyahara was where one learns to withdraw the senses from the world, to become more still. Uh, I'm sorry, after asana was pranayama. Pranayama, the minimum that it was meant to do was to bring peacefulness to the mind. While the mind is not like a monkey all over the place going, you know, (laughs) what <laughs> you know people on these phones it's just like you know it's a monkey land you know it's just like oh my god you know when they first became popular you know i was in in a restaurant and um i was sitting there and this quite large table you know There were like it was in Asia and there was like about 15 or 12 or 15 people obviously office workers you know they're all nicely dressed all came in and sat down at the table and then everybody pulled out their device and started doing this And then the only communication that they had with each other was somebody would sort of like, and then they would show it to the person next to them. And sometimes they would communicate across the table with the person. This person would, you know, you'd hear a bing, then they'd look up and, 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 you know, do a little acknowledgement. And it's just like, oh my God, what's happened to you people? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm currently on the last, on Wednesday I'll come out with the last on, on this series of three talks I've done. Who controls your mind? Serious question. And in it, we really examine how at the beginning of the 20th century, the nephew of Sigmund Freud took what his uncle had developed in terms of using psychology to manipulate masses and applied it to advertising. He developed all the fundamentals of advertising and how to seize control of people's minds and make them do things that they wouldn't do if they weren't controlled in that way. And that's why advertisers can say, okay, we've looked at the market, we've looked at your products, and with this type of targeted advertising in this market, we can increase your market share by 15%. How can somebody say that? And they can say it, and people pay money for it, because it actually works. They can get in. And there will be a certain segment of the population they can control and get them to do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And this is what social media is about. This is mind control on steroids. People can't even spend a day away from their device. And if they get back, if they do and they get back around it, the first thing they're going to do is catch up with everything that they've missed. <laughs> We don't even see that, you know, on the other side of this device, there is an an array of mega computers like guns pointed at you. And they are utilizing all of the research in addiction, addictive personalities, in, in, in behavioral science, how to get people to do things. It's just like it's what's going on in the world is, is monumentally upsetting. There has never been a time when people have been, you know, so manipulated away from what is their spiritual interest. And so the yoga process is really, you know, about, and I'm talking about it in a broad way, not specifically just about bhakti here, is about, you know, gaining control of the mind. In the, in the um, Ashtanga Yoga process, you know, after uh, Pranayama, there was Pratyahara, which meant where you begin to withdraw from the stimulation of the world, because you are going to start taking an inward journey to actually find yourself. And the more that you are aggressively engaged with the world and stimulating your mind and senses, the less you will ever be able to come to the platform of self-realization. After Pratyahara, there was dharana. Dharana was to bring the mind into a central focus and to hold it there For an extended period of time and all you've got to do I remember the first time you know when I read about this I was about uh, 16 and I was on a bus somewhere in Auckland and and I remember trying to do this I mean ridiculous while on a bus right you know just to focus on one single point and hold it there and I, I really discovered how out of control my mind is how almost impossible it is to actually bring your mind into this solitary focus and for it not to shift, even in the most subtle ways, that this is what they would do. And this was in preparation for dhyana or meditation. Meditation has a specific meaning in its true understanding. It means to become immersed in transcendence, to become immersed in that which is spiritual. To be, you know, it's like when you go out to the ocean and immerse your body in the ocean. To be immersed in that which is spiritual. It is purifying. It is transformative. We'll talk a little bit more. But in the Ashtanga yoga process. It's just like. If, if I haven't freaked you out by now. There's probably something wrong with you. Because the thought of having to do this. Is just like. Oh my God. That's. That's intimidating. It's beyond intimidating. And it was for this reason that actual yoga practitioners moved away from population centers. Not because the bush or the countryside was spiritual. No, but it was to remove the clutter. And they would limit their eating. They would endure great hunger even, and even thirst, in part of this process to try and bring their mind into this focus and to be absorbed in transcendence. And that absorption and transcendence was to be absorbed in, one's, in the soul, trying to recognize my spiritual being and existence but more frequently to become immersed in the personality of Godhead, in God. And the progression in this dhyana brings one to a state of what's called samadhi. So this is, you know, like... my God, if I want to be serious about yoga, this is like, whoa, this is a little bit intimidating and overwhelming. Don't worry, we've got some good news for you. (laughs) The path of bhakti is unlike any other yogic path. The same goal the same things are achieved and attained but it is through a somewhat different approach and focus and I'll give you a little example last night or yesterday at some point or the day before when we're when you're really absorbed in kirtan I mean like really absorbed in kirtan you may be aware of people around you and you know and, and and but you're in a situation where your mind you you don't know where you've parked the car. your problems and difficulties in life are not present there anymore. It's just the sound you know. Hare
1: Krishna.
0: And it's just like you're lost in this sound, and you're immersed and bathing in this sound. And whether it is for 10 seconds, or whether it's for 10 minutes, one can actually experience the reality and the fruit of samadhi, where there is a complete absorption in that which is transcendental. I may not be a very elevated transcendentalist myself. I may still have a lot of issues and struggles and things in life. But at that time, at that moment, I am actually tasting the fruit of mature spiritual practice. In this particular age in which we live they divide time into these massive periods of time. It's just like astonishing. You know, the Vedas, it's just like mind-blowing. They talk about, you know, eons of time down to the smallest measurement of time they had was one thousandth of a second. And they talk about how you could measure time, the different techniques. When you explore, you know, Vedic mathematics and and astronomy and on the physical laws, it's just like, oh my gods. If you read it and you are not very informed, you know, you may think some of the stuff, well, it's mumbo jumbo, kind of like, you know, it's like a, a superficial way if you drill down into it it is profound in ways that you you know you couldn't even comprehend so they they divided time into these different ages that had people during these periods of time manifest certain characteristics these characteristics were you know associated with this age this time in which we now live is considered The most unfortunate of times, it is known as Kali Yuga and it began about 5,000 years ago and will continue for another 428,000 years. It is called the age of chaos, quarrel and confusion. Can anybody relate to that (laughs) or not? I mean, people fight over the stupidest things. People become homicidal over issues that are really not that big a deal. You know, over dumb stuff, people lose the plot. And unfortunately, these things here are empowering this at a speed. I mean what this is is like a magnifier it magnifies all of your worst qualities and characteristics it it's like you got a massive steroid injection of the false ego the ego and pride and you know self-opinionatedness and self-centeredness and you 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 uh, it's just, it's sad. People can't even sit down and work stuff out intelligently. Everybody's so driven by emotions. And as a result, you know, we have what we have. I mean, the dumbest thing in the world to me, it's its mind-blowing. you They started in the 1920s, they started the idea of consumerism. And they, they not just talked about, they planned how to change people to become consumers, where instead of buying things that you just needed, you learn to consume stuff just because you're trying to fill up an empty space. And it was driven by two principles, and the top economist in the world talked about it. We need to cultivate in people envy of what others have and greed, always wanting more. This builds the ideal consumer, which sets the world on a course for greater economic development than at any time in in history that people can remember this was a conscious effort all advertising is based on a single principle of of envy where you look at what somebody else has got and you cultivate the desire to have it also in in in, you know a hundred years ago this was considered a really crappy quality People that were by nature envious, you stayed away from them. It was considered, you know, they had a little bit of a disease that was contagious. You hang around with somebody that by nature is envious, it rubs off. And now it's just a common part of society. All advertising is based on this principle and they study how to manipulate you to, to play on this. So you develop a hankering, a yearning for what others have. You know, the whole Facebook thing and Instagram thing, it's all completely, you know, this is like front and center. The whole selfie thing, the whole taking, you know, my phone eats first. You sit down to a meal. You can't even just offer it to God and, and eat it and recognize that it's nourishing and good. No, you've got to flash it to the world so other people will see it. Oh, wow. Well, give it that well. You know, I want some of that too. <laughs> and we don't even think there's anything wrong with that. This has become utterly normalized. That's how screwed up we are. It riles me up because this is not in the interest of humanity. Human life is for this purpose of asking the questions, Who am I? Why am I here? What is life for? This is what distinguishes human beings from animals. And we are taught to simply be animals why don't we do it in the road? (laughs) (laughs) You remember that old Beatles song, why don't we do it in the road? You know, dogs can screw each other on the road. Why can't we become so free? No, you're not free, you're enslaved. Enslaved by desire, enslaved by your senses, enslaved by your mind. This is preventing, you know, to become enslaved by just this whole focus on consumerism and looking for happiness in this world. It's not in our interest. You will see that almost all religions, whether you think they are good or bad, they provided some sort of guardrails, that this kind of behavior is is good for you. And that kind of behavior is not. We don't have any guardrails anymore. If it feels good, do it. That came out of the 60s. Now that, that is how people live. There is no thought about the consequences. If I choose this course of action, if I behave with others this way, if I go down this path, what is it going to mean for me and them? There are consequences. You cannot escape the laws of karma. There are consequences to all choices and all actions. The yogis sought to, you know, back off from this and head in another direction. The great wonder of the process of bhakti, that even though we are in this current age and time, People can, within this lifetime, attain complete self-realization and God-realization. You can become perfectly happy. You can become ecstatically happy. This is not just, you know, some wild idea. This is a practical reality. And the process of bhakti, which is described as the path of Devotion. What does it mean to be devoted? Anybody wanna th- throw something out? What does that word mean? Devoted. To give yourself away? Huh? To give yourself away, maybe. To give yourself away? I, I think we're gonna find that there's gonna be way more than. One one definition. Anybody else got a surrender? surrender. Well, mm-hmm. not loyal. You know, it, it means all of these things. It means to become one pointed in great humility with a heart of surrender and of service to devotedly engage in this single idea, how do I become pleasing to God? And within that idea, when it is expanded, it means, it guides me, and how I will deal with others, and how I will deal with this world. You know, this whole thing that's going on with, you know, climate change and green energy, it's like, oh my God, you guys, can you you believe it that people actually think that by using alternate sources of energy that we can save the planet? No, you can't. You are not going to be able to turn things back unless people radically alter their life and their consumption patterns, how we are living and what we value. This idea that we can go on living the way that we're living, but if we just use windmills or something to generate electricity, that it'll be okay. No, that's crap. That's not true. The only people pushing that idea are the people making and selling
1: windmills.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And they're just so happy when all the greenies get on board and become their what they call useful idiots, people who promote what you're pushing and thinking that it's all going to be the answer. It's not the answer. We need a change of direction. We need to learn to live in moderation, to really quieten the passions and the consumption, and to live more purposeful lives. Right now, most people don't have actual purposeful lives. We are being told what is of value. <clears throat> we are being told by what we should hold in esteem, what we should be focused on. It's not coming from us and I think, oh, I'm making my own choices. No, you're not. <laughs> you're a plaything in the hands of powerful people and The process of of bhakti is a process by which a person learns to dovetail their entire life, everything that you do. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is one verse uh, Lord Krishna says, all that you do, all, not most or some, all that you do, all that you eat, all austerity that you perform, all that you offer meaning to others and give away, should be done as an offering unto me. This has deep meaning and really deep significance, because it means what we're doing, our compass is now going to be Guided towards a different north. Instead of the magnetic north of this world. We are going to be directed. Our north bearings are going to be that which is spiritual. That which is transcendental. And by learning how to. You know some people. When when I first went to India. The fundamental idea that a lot of people had, was that, you know, the gyanis, the ones that are into mental speculation and high philosophy, you know, that that's hardcore. And the yogis, that's hardcore. You know, the tyagis, the great renunciates, that's hardcore. The bhaktis, oh my God, that's for the women and children. And it's just like... Wh- you obviously haven't read anything. <laughs> you're, you're buying into somebody's idea. You don't know and actually understand the meaning, the actual meaning of this word bhakti. As I mentioned earlier, all living beings, if they were stripped of the material covering, and the false identities and the subtle body and the mind and everything in the pure state of the soul the natural expression of all souls is bhakti this is not you know i'm not pushing an idea it's not like i've got a bias well maybe i do have a bias <laughs> You know, I'm just pushing something to get people to join something. No, my, my greatest pain is the fact that the living beings are so utterly misguided primarily by their own minds and all the desires and the emotions and everything that's going on there which is not in your actual self-interest to follow. And so the, the path of bhakti becomes a process by which a person can live within the world, but not be part of the world. Meaning that you may appear to others to be just like everyone else because you're going about your business, you're taking care of things, you're being responsible, you are involved also in society because it's necessary. But you have a whole different motivation and your process of decision-making and what's guiding you is something entirely different. And so the process of bhakti yoga is built around learning to adopt practices and activities in your life that help you become more focused in this direction. And it involves your entire life, your relationships, everything, becomes guided by these certain spiritual principles. Everything has moved. It's it's shifting to a transcendental north. This is what it's really about. It's not about emotions. Emotions are things, you know, it, it is something that resides within the mind. And I was talking to somebody earlier, you know, and I was mentioning it was just like in the mindfulness, you know, practices. Whenever you're in a heightened state of emotions, don't speak, don't make a decision, don't take action. Step away, calm down. Within the process of, of bhakti yoga, there are three clear, it's not like hard lines, you know, clear divisions, but there are three. Okay, I'll use the word divisions of, of um, spiritual practice and attainment. The first is called sadhana, sadhana bhakti. The second is called bhava. Bhatti, and the third is called Prema Bhatti. Sadhana is, it literally means the means to an end. The things that I must do, it's like waypoints on a map. If I'm driving down here from Auckland, and I'm going to take the Hauraki plains route through, you know, near Thames, then I'm going to hit certain places right, that show me how far I am on that journey and the fact that I'm heading in this direction and I will arrive at this destination. So the sadhana, the practices that one adopts, are the practices that begin to bring about this purification and transformation. That transformation is a transformation of what I consider to be the highest object of importance in my life, what I'm aiming for, what what I seek to attain. When a person becomes greatly transformed and purified, when the actual nature of the soul begins to manifest more and more, then one will enter a state of very deep devotion where one will be ecstatically absorbed in these activities, not simply as a means to an end, but one begins to experience a certain joy and ecstatic joyfulness from this connection that i am building with the actual lord of my heart and that will eventually mature into the experience of what is called prema bhakti which is the highest state of actual love so i mean this is just like a humongous subject and and it it's it's so deep and there's so many details you know the way the great transcendentalists have written about it and explained it and so like when I'm asked to speak on the subject of bhakti it's kind of like oh my god what am I how am I going to do this but you know don't don't be intimidated it is a very simple and sure process and Need to okay. I, I I if if I didn't have a clock, I'd be gone for hours here. Need to be mindful of everybody. Um, later tonight, we will talk more about one of the most important, the singular most important practice that is connected to this spiritual path, this spiritual tradition. Anybody got any questions? Yeah. I sort of thought I um, mentioned like taking photos and like we do live in a technology world and I guess um, what are your thoughts around have using technology as a form of like appreciation? So like for me I use you want the real answer okay I think it is nice to be caring, and to be appreciating, but if in my attempts to do that, I am reinforcing in people a false concept that is actually at the root of their suffering, am I actually being kind to them? I'm sorry if this is a bit harsh, and I I, don't worry, I will tone it down, but I'm asking you to think about it from from a very real position. The fundamental, the basis for all suffering is the concept that the body is the self. This is considered the highest form of ignorance. That covers the soul itself. And so if I am engaging in promoting that idea, even kind of like in a subtle way, I'm not really helping. I'm not therefore saying that no you shouldn't take any photos or uh, there has to be more to it, (coughs) meaning there has to be personal transformation that is also shared in a very caring way with others. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it or that you should do it. You know, I'm completely agnostic on that. That's entirely up to people. Whether it's in their best interest or not, you have to consider that from a number of different perspectives. And we're not absolutists in the sense that, no, there's only one standard for behavior. No, we have to embrace the reality that everybody's in a different space. Everybody's coming, you know, they're in different conditions and different states of consciousness. Our first priority is for us to try and come to actually perceive and recognize my own spiritual existence and to help others to to do that also what the one of the problems is things that have become a norm now 15 years ago were considered weird like if I went to visit, you know, Whangamata here. And then in those days, 15 years ago, people didn't take pictures with their phones. Not really. You had a camera. And it wasn't even digital. It was with film. And if I, you know, sat down to eat, then I asked someone, oh, excuse me, could you take a picture of me? eating please thank you you know so much and then oh g- could you take a picture of me you know again that? Say, thank you and then if I started asking people to be constantly taking pictures of me people would be kind of like what's up with that person you know a little bit overly so-called self and it's not even the real self it's the false self overly self-focused And we have been encouraged by social media to become completely selfish and self-centered, self-focused, and and it's in a very subtle way. And so if if we are not careful and if we are not thoughtful, We can simply become someone who has been used by more powerful forces. I mean, the whole whole idea of social media, it, it, it is for one purpose alone. It is to keep you on that platform for as long as possible. That's all they're trying to do. That's their relationship with you, to keep you on there as long. Why? Because they're milking your data. The way in which when you are fed something, whether you just swipe it off, whether you look at it for a second or two seconds or three seconds, and then and then if you respond to someone and say, oh, I just saw this horrible thing, or wow, I saw this fantastic thing. Every single thing that you're doing on that device has been intensely monitored. And it has been used to create behaviors that you may think are normal and natural because everybody's doing it, but you have been utterly controlled in ways that you know you could not even imagine 20 years ago. So when you ask me that question, I to me there's there's a lot more to it. Than just giving you a simple answer. And I'm not going to be in a position of saying, oh, bad, evil, or really good, because there's a lot of ground in between, and it depends which way the needle is trending. You know, if we're trending towards better behaviors and more relevant shows of kindness. I mean, I may I, I got a little kid here, and he's crying because he saw I had some lollies here, and really wants some lollies, you know. And can I have one, please? Can I have one? And you, the kid's got diabetes. Should I be feeding him lollies just because he wants them, you know? And if someone sees me not giving, and they go, "Oh, you're so cruel," you know, but poor kid, don't you know he's got diabetes, and this is really going to spike his blood sugars, and then he's going to need an insulin shot, which he always cries about when he's going to get his insulin shot. You know, you think I should go along with that? And oh, okay, sorry, sorry. You know, <laughs> we've, we've become overly simplistic and overly oriented towards our, the emotions, which is not really good for us spiritually. So sorry, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because there's a lot to it. And it would depend upon where you are at in your journey and your growth and what is the nature of that relationship that you have with others. Is it as a real friend who seeks to wean them away from the lollies, you know, and and not do things that are not helpful for them in their life, that's going to produce more sadness and more unfortunate outcomes. We've become removed from any kind of analytical thinking. We've just been taught, act impulsively. Do not have constraint, do not have, it's evil. If you make somebody feel guilty about doing something that's evil. (laughs) No, it can be very helpful. It can be a tool to help people show some restraint. I'm not saying that people should be manipulated and controlled in that way, but people may, they need to see the, the bigger picture. Is that okay? Yeah. I want to say something about it. Um, I know it's gone too far and it's too much. But if you look on the positive side, it's very good, my opinion. Uh, I'm immigrant here yeah, and I'm in contact with the whole world where I got friends yeah. everywhere. I keep them on my Facebook. That's not mean I use my Facebook every day and all the yeah. time. No. But messages go instantly there. Uh, emails go instantly there. I receive the yeah. important documents, what I need instantly, quickly. I believe it's a very good side. I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, technology is neutral. What's the problem is how it is used. And the problem is it becomes something that can actually magnify the worst in people and it is used to manipulate. I'm also on Facebook. I don't communicate with people, (laughs) meaning, you know, have conversations and stuff. Sometimes people ask me a question and I'll answer and I post talks and stuff there. And, you know, there's a few thousand people around the world that, you know, observe and reach out and, you know, appreciate and so I'm 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 like you. I, I think that there's definitely an upside to technology. What determines its value is your own um, values. And be aware that these platforms are designed. I mean, people in in people that are anybody that's over about 45 or 50. Actually, they are not as affected negatively by social media as young people. They have all these studies. People that kind of grew up with it or were introduced to it really early are incredibly more fragile, incredibly easier to manipulate are incredibly far more moved than people in much older generation, because we came from, you know, a different type of world, and we were exposed to different things. We learned resilience, we learned tolerance, and you know what I mean, and, and, and all of the how to negotiate to get through things and stuff, whereas younger people are not taught these kind of skills, because there's a a transformation of a, a whole social philosophy that's arisen out of the West and now permeating the rest of the world. And and so young people, oh, my God, they become so much more impacted by these things. So but I, I agree with you and thank you for that. Uh, so You know, be careful. Um, The things that we're talking about are actually very deep and there's a lot to cover and sometimes we may only touch on one thing and because I haven't done a good job of explaining you may draw a conclusion that okay on this area maybe this is what he's promoting and it may be not at all it just I haven't done a good enough job at at communicating. Yes. Briefly touch on the environment and not to get sucked into windmills and not get sucked into windmills. And I feel that was um, rather funny. A particular urgency to actually act sustainable and to help repeat
1: the earth and sustainable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I've studied other in the for a little while and I love it, but I'd like to feel that there's a balance and
0: action. Yeah. To Earth, to to Mother Nature as well. So I'd just like to ask. Okay. There's no one easy answer. I'm not saying windmills are bad or green energy is bad. But to think that that's going to solve the problem is is dangerous. You have, what's that guy, Schmidt? He used to be the one of the head guys in Google, another one of these horrible companies that just are abusing the world's population in ways that you can't even comprehend. And he said, you know, he was just like a year and a half ago talking about <clears throat> the absolute need to aggressively fund and pursue space exploration. Because he's saying the world cannot sustain the rate of development. And so his proposition, he's basically saying, we are completely screwing up the planet. And what we need to do is find somewhere else to go so we can start fresh and screw that one up too. (laughs) And it's just like, what? This is a big mind. This is a highly intelligent person. And he's not seeing that there's anything wrong with our consumption patterns. Why? Because Google makes something like $280 U.S. billion a year from advertising. They want you to consume like crazy. That's where them. That's their business model. The biggest companies in the world now are making all of their money by manipulating the masses and getting them to buy and consume stuff. This is a horrible business model. This is horrible for humanity. Horrible for the planet. In the Isau Upanishad, the first mantra: Ishwara Shamidam Sarvam Yatkanchad Jagat Cham Jagat. That's the beginning. The one should view everything animate and inanimate is owned and controlled by the Supreme Lord. One should only accept what is set aside as one's quota and not accept other things knowing well to whom they belong. This is the advice that's given of the mentality, which means that we should look at this planet not as ours, that we can exploit and use and do anything with, that we wish. We should have the consciousness of being a steward that this actually belongs to someone else. It was here before I showed up in this lifetime. It will remain here after I've gone. The idea that I can lay claim to it is false. It's not true. It's not supported by fact. I may be able to get a title and make some claim of ownership, but it's actually a false idea because I can't permanently do that. And then it encourages this idea that one should carefully accept only things that are set aside as one's quota. And one should not accept other things knowing well to whom they belong. That's fundamentally what it means. Whereas we are given the idea that we should consume endlessly, we should just gobble it up, we should, the sense of proprietorship is considered an aggressive principle that runs counter to all spiritual reality. It is a false idea, and it's part of the false identity. Try and live as simply as you can. You don't have to overdo it. Live as simply as you can. Show great reverence and respect for this planet. Try to have a small footprint You know, you have people doing the whole extinction rebellion thing. You know, it's big in Australia and it's really big in the UK. And it's kind of like, yeah, I sympathize with you. But how many of you are willing to give up your devices? No, they're out on the extinction rebellion taking pictures of each other. What's that all about? What's driving that and what's connected to that? You know, this is really what's driving this, these consumption patterns and behaviors are what's driving you know, this idea of the extinction of species. But people don't want to change their consumption patterns. It's, it's like, oh, too, too hard. It's too much. So live as, as simply and honestly and caringly as you can make an offering of your entire life and everything to God, and live in that consciousness of devotion. And, you know, the only thing that you can do is do your best. You can't change the world. You can't change another person's consciousness. We don't have that power. That power belongs to the individual. You are in charge of changing your own consciousness. Not somebody else. What we can do by our example in our life is maybe have an influence or an effect, or be inspire somebody to want to have that personal change also. But you know, promote good and efficient living. One of my spiritual masters used to say, simple living. High thinking. That's a profound idea. Now we're from you know it's the opposite. It's complex living and low thinking.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you go to like, schools still? Do I go to schools? No, to talk about it. Ah, to talk about it. I yes, thought you meant. Did I? Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't get to many schools. I think so, because- well, if somebody invited me, I'd probably show up. I mean, like- but, you know, people are kind of <laughs> like, I, I, you can't imagine how scared teachers are now about having people come into their school. What are they going to say to the students? Are they going to say something that's going to offend people? It's just like, oh, my God, that's become your concern whether somebody's got a out of kilter or out of skew value system and you're going to say something that will offend them it's just like oh my god what's happened to the world Because the metaverse you've heard all of yeah and I'm really yeah. scared okay I, I, the talk, I, I just posted an ad to the talk I'm doing next Wednesday which is titled, The Metaverse, A Mega Problem. <laughs> and it, it's, you can't believe how, how and, and this is the technology point. I mean, what's his name? Zuckerberg. He has got people out approaching the mega churches in America and Europe. You know these churches where thousands of people show up, you know, and they do the song thing and everything and the worship services. He he has got people going and making representation and going to support them with the technology and cut rate on on the on the goggles and everything with the idea that you can get your message out to more people, you can do more good for the world if you become more involved with this platform. But somebody, a, a, a technology whiz, just did a thing in, in a newspaper article or online article Mark Zuckerberg wants to become your landlord. (laughs) In other words, he wants to get people to move onto the platform permanently and to become stuck there so that they can amplify their manipulation of people and the way they're thinking. And so what they do is they go out and and you can't imagine it because, you know, all these guys were anti-religion before, but now they're actually going out to the churches and getting them, convincing them to to adopt the technology and to get all the support to do it. Only because they know that if religious people become, they buy into it, everybody will think, well, it's harmless, it's good, it's not a big problem. It's just gross manipulation, you know? And it's just like... What can I say? Okay, enough. (laughs) 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 Haribo. 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 If I said anything to offend anyone, I'm sorry. It's not my intention, but maybe, I don't know, I won't comment on that. Huddy Bowl.